The Immobilia is an iconic building in the history of Egyptian cinema. Standing just north of Abdel Khalid Sarwat Street in downtown Cairo, the building has hosted many production companies, housed many movie stars, attracted many cinephiles to its cineclubs, and even featured in films like Haye Aumot and Qissa Mamnoua. The majestic white building has its entrance in a small dark alley behind a grand metal door leading onto marble stairs in a huge, badly lit lobby. Sand and dirt accumulate on an unlit neon sign bearing the Arabic caption of a long gone production house, the Heliopolis Company for Film Production. The failing lights and the deteriorating interior cement the impression that this building was iconic in a bygone era, but is now falling into disuse. I'm filled with excitement and angst when I first entered the lobby on September 2nd, 2013. This was the very first time I would visit a production company, what I had envisioned for a whole year as the start of my field research. Not caring much about the storied building, I go straight to the sixth floor, where I have an appointment with the general manager of New Century, Ahmed Badawi. Three middle-aged men sit in the office, two on waiting chairs and one behind a small desk in what looks like a very narrow vestibule. The man behind the desk stands up. Yes, sir, he asks, with the half upright, half suspicious tone characteristic of gatekeepers in Cairo. I'm here to meet Mr. Ahmed Badawi. What? exclaims the man as he leans in. I had spoken too softly as usual. I have an appointment with Mr. Ahmed Badawi. The man walks behind his desk, opens a glass door leading further into the office and asks me to sit down on a small leather couch next to the entrance. This room is bigger than the vestibule, yet it feels narrower because of the large desks covered in boxes, papers, and computers. Behind the desks, a young man in a dress shirt and a young hijabi woman stare at me in silence, while the reception man enters another narrow corridor. One or two minutes later, he comes back saying, Itfadbal, politely nudging me to come through. Welcome to Middle East Center Book Talk, the Oxford podcast on new books about the Middle East. These are some of the books written by members of our community or the books that our community are talking about. My name is Walter Armbrust and I teach social anthropology of the Middle East. And I'd like to introduce tonight's speaker. My guest is Shihab al-Khashab. Shihab came to Oxford in, I think it was 2010. It might've been 2011. 12, 2012. 2012, okay. Well, so it's after I got back from Egypt, not before to do a DPhil or a PhD in Oxfordese in anthropology. He was supervised initially by Paul Dresch, and when Paul retired, by Marcus Banks and myself. After completing the DPhil in 2016, or was it 2017, I'm not sure, Shihab won a ultra-competitive junior research fellowship at Christchurch College, and he went from that to an also super competitive British Academy Early Career Fellowship at Cambridge, which is where he is now. Shihab's dissertation was an ethnography of film production in Egypt, which has now been converted into a book published by the American University in Cairo Press titled Making Film in Egypt, How Labor, Technology, and Mediation Shape the Industry. Shihab, first of all, I want to welcome you to Book Talk. Welcome back to the Middle East Center community, at least virtually speaking. I feel like you've never really left, but I do still want to ask you how your Oxford experience prepared you for your research. Well, I think in many ways, I think uh, in my first year at Oxford, I did quite a bit of reading in general kind of visual anthropology, and especially people who kind of worked on film in anthropology in other parts of the world 
in Egypt specifically, there wasn't that much written. I mean, there was your work essentially and maybe a few other people. But basically being in Oxford and being supervised by Marcus and Paul Dresch, as you've mentioned, gave me a kind of broader sense of the field of visual anthropology and what kinds of gaps there were in terms of studying film in different parts of the world. As well as having a Middle East center, I think was a big difference, not just because of the, you know, the Middle East center seminar series and the, the people there, but also the, the graduate students that were there. I think I had a lot of connections with some of the people who had ongoing work, uh, fieldwork specifically in the, in the region. And I think that helped quite a lot to gain a sense of the particular type of audience that I would be going for if I'm you know, going to do my research in Egypt. So that's before even fieldwork. Um, and post-fieldwork, that was even more important. I think the, the particular community of scholars that gather around issues of visual anthropology and Middle East studies, I think Oxford was quite central in, in bridging those two interests together not just in terms of resources, but also in terms of the people that were there. Tell us something about how you wrote this book. I mean, what made you want to write about the film industry in the first place? I mean, media professionals, in my experience, tend to be a really tight-knit group. I mean, mm -hmm. they might, might not be easy to talk to in general, but the work tends to be really specialized. So how did you go about transforming yourself from an outsider to somebody that filmmakers could talk to about their work? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, sometimes I'm not even sure how this happened in practice, but I think, well, the interest really comes from, uh, you know, I, I always had an interest in film and, you know, watching movies and, and trying to understand how they're made specifically. And I felt like after I went to university and did a, an anthropology course, I was like, well, why don't we do an anthropology of how they make movies? And at the time where I started having those ideas, there wasn't much in the way of a literature that's very ethnographic, but also on commercial film production. For reasons that partly have to do with what you described, that it's quite a specialized field, that it, it, access is quite difficult. And I think what helped me a lot in this, specifically in the case of Egypt, were two things. I think one of them was luck in some ways that like I managed to meet people that were open enough to the idea of having an ethnographer hanging around their set right all day. Um, and because of the general informality of a lot of interactions in Cairo, I feel like th this helped me out quite a lot once I had an in. The excerpt that I read at the very beginning of today was basically the first time I met one of the really important people for my fieldwork that then kind of connected me with one of the projects that I followed from beginning to end. And once that was done, once you're on the set, everyone is just kind of, you know, talking to you since you're around anyways. And I think the other thing that helped out quite a lot was that I came off as just like a young single man, which is what a lot of people in the industry are, you know, um, and single Egyptian man specifically, right? Like I didn't necessarily look like I was out of place in that sense. So most people, when I encountered them, they would assume that I was doing some kind of thing on set. And then I'd have to explain to them that I'm, you know, actually an ethnographer. And then what is ethnography? And why am I taking all these notes? And then they make all these jokes about me, you know, taking notes on set and stuff. But I think that part of that informality in my particular position and the way I came off to filmmakers made it easier to interact. And I, I think the other thing is, I, I think I was a fairly quick study in the sense that like, I, I feel like I've quickly caught on to like what I could do, what I couldn't do, what when I could ask about things, how I could ask about them. And so I hope that I wasn't too annoying for people to, you know, be around too much. <laughs> so, so your, your book's about labor, but it's also about mediation. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to ask you, how do labor and mediation go together? I mean, in everyday life, people talk about media or the media all the time. And I suspect it doesn't take 
much of a leap of imagination for most people to think of media as a business, but not necessarily as labor. And mediation sounds like something that's done between two people or between two entities to bring them together. And so I just want to ask, how did you conceive of making a relation between media and labor in your, in your work? Well, so this is something that I came to from my experience in the in the industry. And I think later on, after I came back from field work, I realized that there, were, there was a, quite a bit of literature in something specifically in, in media studies that's called production studies, that studies that specific relation between media and, and labor. But really for me, it came from just hanging out with people on film sets and hearing them talk all the time about like their, their work and their the next contract that they're going to get and how tired they were because, you know, shooting days are super long or how uh, difficult it is to, you know, negotiate certain things because there aren't very strong unions, for example, or things of the sort. So there's there was a lot of talk about labor and there was a lot of kind of embodied instances of, you know, labor in action in the process of the production of film. So that's how I came to conceive of this as a very central issue. Um, and this is the first chapter that I actually wrote back when this book was a thesis. And I think in terms of thinking about mediation and the relationship to labor, like a lot of the literature in production studies, what, what I basically came to understand was that a lot of what the final product of media is and the, the kind of the, the thing that you end up seeing, whether it's like a movie or a, a TV series or a video clip or whatever, tends to erase quite a bit of the labor that's done behind the scenes. And when, when you're there while it's being made, you just feel a very different texture of like all sorts of people working. There's quite a, a kind of a, a large division of labor, lots of equipment, lots of stuff happening all the time. And so to conceive of the process that leads to the making of a finished kind of polished product as a series of, you know, mediations in some ways, it's something that, you know, it's not just me who's doing it, but like a lot of other people who work on media. But this is something that really comes from that, that experience of like being there and, and you know, thinking about it in, in that way. Which like if you're sitting at home and just watching things on YouTube or, you know, watching this interview on, on a podcast on, on YouTube or something, then you don't necessarily get to understand the, the thickness and complexity of the division of labor that goes into it. Ethnography is supposed to be based on what anthropologists often describe as participant observation. I mean, in other words, you're supposed to do stuff with people. You're not supposed <laughs> to observe them or interview them. And so what, what did participant observation mean in this book? I mean, did you actually work in the film industry? Yeah, I think it, it just it meant different things to me and different projects. I think what so in one of the main projects I was in, I was much more of an observer than a participant. I was a participant in the sense that I like hung out around and, and closer than like someone who's outside of the set would be, for example, but not so close that I would be like involved in some direct decisions on the movie. But in, in the other movie that I worked in, which was called Poisonous Roses, I, I actually worked in that movie. I was like a contracted worker. I did some casting. I did some production, like scouting. I did a little bit of things here and there to help out because um, it was a, a bit of a smaller production. And so in, in that case, the participation was much more direct. And that experience was really important for me in terms of putting into perspective a lot of the things that people had told me or that I'd seen, but hadn't like develop the feelings of as much as when I was working on that on that film. And so I think like in a lot of participant observation, I, you know, it's, it's a kind of clunky term, but it's, I mean, to different degrees, you're participating to different degrees, you're observing. But more importantly than that, I think it's, you're doing something that's quite similar to what a lot of other people in that same world are doing. It's just, you're doing it more systematically and taking notes about it and trying to make like a, a monograph out of it in the end and so on. 
But in some sense, like a lot of what I was doing, trying to learn how the industry was like, was a little bit like other novices in the industry. So like in some of the projects that I worked on, you know, it was my first project, let's say, uh, working on and then other people too. And a lot of what they did to try to learn what was going on and try to kind of get someone's attention to, you know, help them understand what's happening and so on is, is actually quite similar. I feel like the, the main difference is ultimately like the, the, the broader goal that you have, let's say, whether it's to integrate the industry or to like write a book about it, which was my goal. And I mentioned in the book that a lot of people didn't really believe me when I, I would say that I'm not, I'm not in it to become a director. Right? I'm in it to, to write this book. And they were like, no, no, that's not true. You're going to learn all this experience and you're going to come and take our jobs and stuff. <laughs> so, so yeah, and, and I think in some ways they, they, their perception of that particular dynamic isn't inaccurate in a way. Like I could have, you know, ultimately decided to like integrate the industry in some way. But yeah, I was after something a little bit different and odd from their perspective, I think. You talk in the book about artistic and executive forms of labor, and, and probably most people have some sense of the artistic side of a film, or at least, you know, we conventionally assign the function of the author to the director, and I guess people attribute some degrees of artistry to actors and writers and the people who write the film's music and so forth. What do we gain from learning about the executive side of making a film? That's a good question. I think, well, so the first thing is that you gain to understand how the, the people that make the decisions um, end up having them executed, right? Like, because ultimately, that, like what I always find interesting about people talking about the director did this or the cinematographer decided that is that in, in that verb uh, that they're using to decide to make and so on, there's like a lot of people that are <laughs> involved in the, the, the making of it happening, right? So I think very basically, that's one of the things you get out of it. The other thing you get out of it, I think, is, is a sense of all the different um, points at which some kind of unspoken decisions get taken uh, based on the particular habits that executive workers have um, in certain, you know, domains, whether they're the production workers, whether they're, you know, the ones that execute the sets or the ones that, you know, execute the lightings and, and the, the camera movements and so on. They, they do play a large role in, in some kind of unspoken embodied ways in terms of how the films end up being made. But because they're treated both by the more higher end workers and by the academic literature, often as just kind of cogs in the machine that just like execute some decision that was already made in advance, there's not, not much thought given to the fact that they actually intervene in quite instrumental ways in, first of all, making it work, but also giving the movie a particular shape, which um, I didn't really kind of detail in at much length in the book, but I mean, there, there's a lot of ways in which the particular way in which uh, workers are trained in the industry, especially executive workers, influences the, the particular quality of the final product. And this is something that I've conveyed in bits and pieces, but that I think is quite important to know about like, you know, this aspect of the industry. And the other thing I would say about this whole artistic and executive dynamic that I think is quite important is to understand that the industry is a hierarchical space, that it's it's not like, you know, everyone is having fun and collaborating and then making something at the end, that in order to, for a film to be made in a kind of industrial capitalist society like Cairo is, you, you have to have some form of um, exploitation, right, which isn't a word I've used in the book, but this is basically what a lot of the relationships of labor in the industry are. And a lot of the labor complaints that some of the lower end or executive workers have 
have to do with that particular dynamic of exploitation. So that, you know, by the end, you see a movie that looks glossy and nice and so on, but a lot of stuff had to go into it before you, you see it as it is. So yeah, these are the things I think you can learn. Okay. One of the things you write about is scouting locations for shooting scenes, which means not just finding a place that looks right for the for, for the scene, but coordinating all the stuff that has to happen to make the scene be realized. Mm -hmm. Briefly talk us through that process. I mean, when we watch a scene in a film, ideally it's supposed to look seamless. I mean, usually the goal is to make it look as natural as possible so that the person watching feels a sensation of looking at something real or sort of even being in it. But what actually happens to produce that effect? I mean, if you can just like talk through one particularly memorable scene. Yeah, sure. I mean, one, so in the, one of the movies that I followed is called Decor. Um, one of the apartments that they shot the world of Mustafa and Maha, two of the characters, in, was an apartment uh, in Garden City. So ultimately, it ended up being an apartment in Garden City. For months before then, the production crew was going around Cairo, photographing different apartments, and basically trying to coordinate with real estate agents. So there, there's a, a quite kind of interesting connection between the production side of things and the real estate uh, world of Cairo, where a lot of real estate agents actually have lists of apartments that are open for shooting. And then, you know, the, the production workers will go visit a bunch of them, take pictures, come back to the, to the office, and then decide which ones they'll show to the, the main crew, uh, like the director and the cinematographer and the art directors. And th that crew kind of, based on these pictures, starts thinking, okay, maybe these two or three locations are fine. They go look at it in person. And then once they find something that's good for them, they choose it. And this is a little bit what happened in the case of the apartment that ended up being in Garden City in that, in that movie. And a lot of the reasons in that specific case that they gave for why they chose the apartment had to do with things that are quite, you know, aesthetic in a way that have to do with like what the final film will look like. Uh, but so part of what I try to explain in the book is, is how in order for them to, you know, imagine that relationship between essentially the, the kind of scouting images that they have in the present and whatever will be in the future, they have to basically as kind of artistic crew members abstract a lot of the labor and time that it takes to um, actually come to some kind of narrowed down decision about a, a couple of apartments to, to visit. And so part of the, the production of the feeling of seamlessness has to do with this way of, of shedding away in a sense, all the, the stuff that has to go into kind of finding the right place. And once you do find the right place, you, you try and shed away again, a lot of other stuff. So for example, you know, the way they've rearranged the apartment in some ways in order for the camera to be able to circulate within it quite well. Part of the reason they chose that apartment was because it was quite large, so they could do camera movements in some ways that they couldn't have in a smaller place. Part of the other reason was because there are several layers within the apartment, which, you know, gave something nice in terms of the depth of the image um, and things like that. But in, in order for them to reach those decisions, as I try to explain, it takes quite a lot more than just kind of thinking that it will look realistic or it will be nice in the end and so on. So, you know, that's, I think, the, the process in a way of how that happens. There's many, many steps. Mm. And the final chapter is called Enchantment. And yeah. I understood that we're supposed to be living in a more or less disenchanted world in many ways. Yeah. Yeah. Although, although media are certainly one of the things in our lives that exercise our imaginations in ways that, you know, can't be rationalized. Mm -hmm. and described in a rational way. But I'm wondering if people making the film feel a sense of enchantment, or do they just look at the film and remember all the stuff that they had to do to make 
you know, to bring the film to life. I mean, you know, I suppose in a way, the people who work on the film are the ones who know what it what went into the sausage. I mean, yeah, can actually enjoy the sausage, knowing what went into. <laughs> I think it it depends who you ask. I talk about this a little bit in the book. I mean, the 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 way I use the term enchantment is is really coming from a very specific you know, thing from Alfred Gell, who's an anthropologist of art, who talks about enchantment as this particular thing that artists want to get out of their audiences, basically. And, and what I try to explain a little bit in that chapter is basically how the, the Egyptian film crews try to produce that sense of seamlessness in the film as a way of enchanting their audiences. But in terms of how they feel towards their own uh, product in a way. I think it depends a lot on who you're asking within the hierarchy of film production. Like I've met loads of workers that don't even want to watch their own movies. I've met loads of workers that work in movies that they don't enjoy as a genre kind of, you know, it just happens to be the, the you know movies that they, they find work in. I met a lot of workers, which I also wrote about that th think of cinema as somewhat of a kind of morally opprobrious thing, right? Like there's a lot of workers who work, especially in the kind of more executive side of things that don't necessarily think of cinema as like necessarily this, this great thing as, you know, directors can projectors, screenwriters and so on. And from the viewpoint of directors or screenwriters or the more higher end workers, it, it also depends on what the particular product is and, and what they, you know, th their kind of sense of how it managed to happen, I guess, changes over time as well. And this I see with, you know, the, the movies that I followed, the, the, for the decor was uh, made in 2014. And with time, the more I hear back about like people reminiscing about what that movie was like and how it was like, I think what a lot of um, the workers that worked in that movie retained from it was actually how nice of a, a set it was as an experience kind of to just be there and people were nice to each other. There wasn't major drama. There wasn't, you know, people insulting each other on set. Uh, think, you know, they worked fairly reasonable hours as far as that's possible in Egypt. Uh, and so that's a lot of what they remember. But then, um, you know, in terms of the movie itself, that's not necessarily what's on the mind of filmmakers. So I don't know. I think, yeah, it really depends who you're asking within the crew. The, the things that people retain from the making of film isn't what we think it is. Mm, okay, well, so I'll take that as saying that some people would rather have steak than... <laughs> than sausage, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Thanks for an excellent conversation on a great book. I've been speaking with author Shihab al-Khashab about his book, Making Film in Egypt, How Labor, Technology, and Mediation Shaped the Industry. The book is, has been published by American University and Cairo Press. It's out now. I think AUC has a, a very good international distribution. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's available everywhere, essentially. <laughs> you should be able to get it at a bookstore near you or, or an online book vendor, whichever one you use. This has been Middle East Center Book Talk. Thank you for listening and goodbye from Oxford.